0: Father, we are so thankful, so thankful for your great love for us, so thankful that you sent Jesus, your Son, for the reason of our salvation, to make an offering for our sins. You took upon everything, every, every suffering, every sin, all of our wrongdoings, so that we might be saved. We are so thankful this morning, so thankful that you have overcome even death itself. We celebrate you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Good morning, everyone. Today is a day of celebration. Okay, good. We're off to a good start. Okay, we're going to keep that up the rest of the morning. Lots of hallelujahs, lots of amens, and if you get real excited, just a glory to God every once in a while, we'll be very welcome, all right? Over the last week, we've been reliving this story. Every year, we take a moment to take a step back and relive what Jesus has done for us. Last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday, which is Jesus' triumphal into Jerusalem. We celebrate by saying, glory to God, glory in the highest. This is the King of Israel. That's what we celebrated last week. On Thursday, which we didn't do anything special here, is Monday Thursday. It's the day where Jesus has his Last Supper with his disciples, where he gets down on his knees and shows that he came to serve, not to be served. He washes his disciples' feet. On Friday, which we call Good Friday, is the day of Jesus' passion. We had a wonderful time here reliving that on Friday in a very difficult and somber way. He was crucified for us. He died for us. Or his death was our salvation. And Saturday, which we typically pass over a little bit, is called Holy Saturday. It's a day of silence, it's a day of longing, it's a day of reflecting. I thought this was the Messiah, I thought this was the Son of God, but he's dead. But we know that that's not where things end. That's not where the story ends, because today is the day that we celebrate. Today is the day that we celebrate the salvation that comes from the Lord, because Jesus is risen. There we go. Come on. It's a day to remember, it's a day to recall Jesus' great salvation for us, but it's also a day to respond to God's salvation. Today is a day that I, I want to challenge us a bit. I want to challenge us to consider the message of Jesus to consider the resurrection story, to consider his crucifixion. It's no coincidence that you're here today. Maybe you're here and someone asked you to come with them. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. I'm just, I'm not sure about it. I want to challenge you today to just consider what I have to say. Just consider the account, consider what the word has to say, consider the historical evidence at the heart of the gospel message. No one's going to force you to do anything today, but I want to challenge you to open your mind this morning. See, what we believe about Jesus' death and resurrection is the most important thing about us. It is literally the most important thing that we consider. What we have to say about Jesus' death and resurrection informs every single thing about our lives. See, Christ is the Savior. He is the one who has overcome. He died upon the cross and proved that he had defeated death by rising again on the third day. This is a message that we hear every Easter. Easter. It's one that maybe you've tuned out a little bit because you've heard it time and time again. But my hope today is that God will reawaken something within sight of us. Because this, this truth, this reality that Jesus has risen from the dead, it changes everything. If this is true, everything has changed. And the reason that this matters is because Jesus isn't just some guy that we read about. Jesus isn't a created being. Instead, he is God himself. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that all things were created through him. He is God of God. He is the eternal word of God, as John 1 would tell us. And he became man in his incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas for one purpose. He came to earth for one purpose, and that's to reveal the love of God in his death and resurrection. For this reason, Jesus came. For this reason, he came for your salvation, for my salvation. St. Athanasius said it like this in the 4th century. He said the supreme object of Jesus' coming was to bring about the resurrection of the body. This was to be the monument of his victory over death. The assurance to all that he had himself conquered corruption and that their own bodies also eventually would be incorrupt. See, what we celebrate today is that Jesus' resurrection seals his and our victory over death. His resurrection is death's defeat. That's the good news of today. Today we're celebrating the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that we have because of his resurrection. And I'm here to tell you that it's a hope unlike any other hope. It's a hope that surpasses every single thing. It's a hope that's greater than any fear that you may have, even of death itself. It's a hope that brings joy and peace. A hope that's not fleeting. A hope that will never fade. A hope that's eternal. It will never let you down. Jesus will never let you down. Because of the resurrection, we have a firm hope in Jesus Christ. You can have confidence in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news. It's worth celebrating Jesus, the King of the universe. The one who created all things has been victorious in his battle over death. Amen? Well, this morning I want to highlight a few things from our reading in Matthew. I know it was a long reading, but it's good for us to spend some extended time hearing the gospel story every once in a while. And what I want to do is I want to help us to better consider what the cross and the resurrection mean this morning. I've got three main points, but they're long points. I hope that you'll you'll stay with me this morning. Number one, Jesus' death is our atoning sacrifice. It's important for us on Sunday morning to remember what happens on Friday before we can get to the good news of the resurrection. So I want you to picture with me what's happening to Jesus. Picture with me what's happening during his death. He's betrayed. Betrayed by those closest to him. By one of his disciples. By Judas who had been living with him for three years. He's there going to get crucified, and none of his disciples are anywhere to be found. Peter, even Peter, his closest disciple, has denied him three times. He's left alone to die. His back is shredded with the whip. Time and time again, they hit him. And finally, he's crucified. They nail his wrists to the cross. They nail his ankles to the cross. And he's raised up and slowly begins to suffocate. With every breath, he's pushing himself up against the cross over and over again, feeling the pain time and time again. See, this death wasn't any death. It was the most gruesome death imaginable in the first century. The most difficult kind of death. It was trying to produce the most pain possible in Jesus. It resulted in Jesus finally crying out with a loud voice and yielding his spirit, as Matthew 27.50 tells us. See, But Jesus didn't just die. It wasn't enough for all this to happen to him, because everyone dies, right? Every single one of us dies, so why does it matter that this man died? Because all of our sin. All of our shame, all of our wrongdoings was poured out upon him upon the cross. He willingly took that upon himself because he is our perfect sacrifice. He is the only one who can make right ourselves before God. He is sinless. He did nothing wrong in his life, but yet he was killed as though he did. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died in our place. The perfect for the imperfect. The just for the unjust. He was so good, we are not. And yet he willingly did that. He willingly took this upon himself so that you and I might live. On Friday, we talked about how this was for the joy set before him. He willingly did all of this. It gave him such joy to bring about your salvation that he looked at what was ahead of him and said, I'll do it. I will give my life. I will take all this upon me. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, okay, he took took upon my sins, sure, but I'm a pretty good person. I've done good things. I do more good than I do bad. I try to tell the truth most of the time. I don't get angry that much. I try to control my temper. I try to treat people correctly. Please hear me in love today. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. No good is good enough because you're not being judged by your standards. We're not being judged by any of our standards. We're being judged by a holy and righteous God. Romans 3, 21 through 28 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every single one of us. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See Our good actions, they're not good enough. Every good that we do, it's like filthy rags before the Lord. We can never earn our salvation. We can never be good enough. We can never do more good than we can do bad. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the big deal, though? We've all sinned, sure. We're all human, right? We all do the bad things. We all know that. Deep down, we know that. Our conscience convicts us when we do something wrong. What's the big deal? Well, a few chapters later in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. Again, what's the big deal? Don't we all die? He's not just talking about a physical death, but a spiritual death. An eternal death, a separation from God, a place where there's no love, where there's no goodness, the absence of all of these things, separated for eternity from God in hell. But thankfully, the reason that we celebrate today is that doesn't have to be everything. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. In fact, there's a second half to that verse. Some of you may have caught it. It's not just for all have sinned. It's not just so the wages of sin is death. That's not the only part of that verse. There's a second part to it that says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. The wages of our sin is death. But there's good news Jesus has overcome, and the free gift of God is his salvation. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything for it. You just have to surrender. You just have to surrender. Our good isn't good enough. But Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself in our place. He says, I know they can't do it on their own. I know all of their striving, all of their ceasing, every time they try and come to me, they're always going to fail. They're always going to have difficulty. But I can take their place. God of God can take my place. He took our place. He traded His life for ours. And by placing our trust in Him as His disciple, we can receive the salvation that He offers. You can receive His salvation. It's a free gift of God because of His great love for us. Because of His great love for you, you can leave here today knowing that you are made right before God. That He loves you with an unfailing love. I want to read 1 John 4, 9 through 10. It says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves you. He loves you. Listen to me. God loves you. And he wants to give you peace. He wants to make you whole. He wants to show you his radical love. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking the opposite of the person that I was talking about earlier. You're not thinking that you're good enough. Maybe you're looking at your life and you're like, man, I have screwed up. Time and time again, I've gone the wrong way. You're you're looking at yourself and you're saying, how could God forgive me? You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. Sure, that may be good for you, Pastor. That may be good for other people here, but you don't know what I've been through. Listen to me. Listen to me. God loves you despite your shortcomings. He loves you despite your sins. There's nothing that you can do that nullifies God's love for you. Nothing that you can do that makes you too far gone. There's nothing. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've stolen. Doesn't matter if you've cheated. It doesn't matter if you've abused or even killed. God's grace is for you. It's for you. It's for me, every single one of us. See, The beauty of the gospel story is that he sees our sin and loves us in spite of it. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've been through. He knows all the shortcomings. He knows all the, the stuff in your life. And yet he still loves you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. The good news is we don't have to clean ourselves up in order to come to God. That's the work of sanctification that comes later. We don't have to make ourselves good in order to come to God. He loves us where we are and he says, just come to me. Come to me with all your burdens. Come to me with all your sin. Come to me with all your difficulty. I will make you clean. I will make you new. You don't believe me? I got a scripture for that too. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. When there was nothing good inside of us, nothing that we could do that's pleasing to God, he died for us there. See, in your sin, when you're furthest from God, when there's nothing good inside of you, Christ died for you. He died for you even Look at me like I'm the only person in the room and you're the only person in the room. God loves you. He loves you with an unfailing love. He desires for you to experience his love. He desires for you to experience his grace. He desires for you to experience his mercy and his freedom that comes from salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That's what he desires for you. You are radically loved by God. So loved that he gave his life for you. So loved. Before we're done today, you're going to have an opportunity to respond to that love, to experience the peace that surpasses understanding, to experience joy unspeakable. But before we get that, I, I want to take a moment to reflect upon the resurrection. It's important for us to, to not just spend too much time talking about Jesus' death and be like, oh yeah, and he, ris- he rose from the grave. It's like, wait, hold on, What? It's important for us to to survey this and talk about this. And so number two, the resurrection of Jesus is the only historical option to explain Christianity. It's the only option. Many would say that the resurrection of Jesus is just a fairy tale. That it couldn't possibly be true. And maybe you're sitting here today. Maybe you're thinking that. And I can sympathize with that point of view. Now, some of us will be quick to say, oh, of course it's real, Pastor. Of course it's real. Well, I want to take just a moment because on its face, like, we should believe this. Like, this should be our default to believe that the resurrection didn't happen. Because this is ridiculous. Like, it's absurd to think that the resurrection happened. What do you mean a dead guy came back to life? It's crazy. And it's important for us to take a moment to think about that. To think about that. Because what if it is true? What if it is true? What if Jesus did come back to life? What if the resurrection is true? Wouldn't that change everything? Jesus' resurrection is not a small part of Christianity. It's the pinnacle of Christianity. All of history revolves around this one point in time, the resurrection of Jesus. It's implausible, yet it happened. Without the resurrection, Jesus' life, his teaching, his miracles, and even his death are meaningless. Without the resurrection, it doesn't mean anything. Even the death on the cross doesn't mean anything because everyone dies. But no one comes back to life. No one is resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is what changes everything. It's the reason that we're gathered here this morning. Because dead people don't come back to life. But one did. But one did, and he's the reason that we celebrate today. That though dead people don't come back to life, one did. Jesus the Christ has risen. He is risen. Dr. N.T. Wright, a first-century historian and New Testament scholar, has written that the proposal that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead possesses unrivaled power to explain the historical data at the heart of early Christianity. I want to put us back in the story of the crucifixion for a moment. I want us to, to go back there, go back to the first century. You know, we don't have any cars, your cell phone is gone. Just put yourself in this story for just a moment. All of Jesus' disciples have abandoned him. Only the women are left. All the other disciples have gone away. And they're not plotting on ways to overthrow the established religious order. They're not like, oh, how can we do this and make this believable? What can we do? If we, we go to read other gospels, what are they doing? They're fishing. They're fishing. They've gone back to their old ways. They said, we thought this was the Messiah. We thought this was the King of Israel. We thought this was the one who was going to come make all things new, but he's dead. They've returned to their old life. They're not trying to do anything to overthrow the established religious order. In fact, if we would go to Luke's Gospel in Luke 24, 9-12, Luke actually records that when the women come to tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples say, no, that's nonsense. That's absurdity. And I love this about Scripture because it's not a neatly packaged story. It's not neatly revised. the The disciples are saying, this is nonsense. This is absurdity. Dead men don't rise from the dead. And what we love about this is it shows us that it's the real account of something happening. If we were trying to manufacture a story, we would surely do it in different ways than this. It would be very different than the way that we do it. But the fact that dead people don't come back to life actually helps strengthen the case that Jesus did rise from the dead. Because this doesn't normally happen, this actually strengthens the case. Because history, N.T. Wright would say, is full of remarkable things that happen one time and one time only. And what we can do is we can examine the data that's at the heart of history. And that's what we see in the disciples. That's what we see in the early churches. They go from not believing. They go from saying, this is absurdity. This is nonsense. Dead people don't come back to life. But then something radically changes in them. That's not where they stay. The disciples become so convinced of this. So convinced of this that every single one of them give their lives for the sake of the gospel. They proclaim that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Not just that he was Messiah. Not just that he did miraculous works. Not just that he was a a good person. They proclaim that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. And it costs them everything. It costs them everything. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I want to share with you how some of the disciples died. This is just a a cross-section of how some of the disciples died. Peter. The one who denied Jesus three times was crucified upside down. He wouldn't even let them crucify him right way up because he said it's not fitting because that's how my Lord died. Andrew, his brother, was also crucified. Thomas, the one who we call Doubting Thomas, the one who says, Unless I put my fingers where the nails were, I won't believe. Doubting Thomas was pierced by four swords for his belief in the resurrection. Philip was cruelly put to death after converting a Roman official's wife. Paul, the one who began to to go against the Christians, the one who began to persecute them, was beheaded for his belief in Jesus. James, one of the brothers of Jesus, was clubbed to death after being asked to give an account while standing up on a ledge saying, Is Jesus truly the Son of God? Is he who you say he is? He says, Yes. And they club him to death. Matthias, who's only made an apostle after the resurrection of Jesus, was burned to death. The list goes on and on and on. If the resurrection wasn't true, why would these men go through this? Why would they say yes to even this death without any of them recanting? The reality is is that they wouldn't. They wouldn't go through this. They wouldn't endure over the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection. The Christians would go through immense suffering. It's not like it is here where there's no persecution for becoming a Christian. They went through real persecution. It wasn't cool to be a Christian. It meant death more often than not. Saying yes to Jesus meant no to everything else. Christians over the first 300 years were were used as human torches by the Romans. For fun. As human candles to make light in their games. This is what it meant to be a Christian. And yet Christians didn't take over the world. They didn't become the predominant religion based off force. They never picked up a sword. They never took anything by force. Instead, they did it through love. They did it by laying down their lives because they were able to face death. They were able to say yes to Jesus because they knew that he had overcome death. They knew that something had happened, that this Jesus, when he was He was dead, but now he is alive. And the, So they said, I'll go. I'll share this gospel. I'll tell everyone I know about it because I don't fear. They knew that even though man may kill their body, they had eternal life. See, there's no historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus being false. There's no historical evidence of it being false, but there's ample historical evidence about it being true. It's one of the most well-attested things throughout ancient history that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. We have more evidence of the life and teaching of Jesus than we do of Julius Caesar. All of us will say that Julius Caesar, yeah, he did all these things. We have more evidence of what Jesus did. The New Testament is the most well-known, most uh, highly regarded book throughout ancient antiquity because we have so many sources saying that this is what really happened. And the absurdity of the resurrection. The fact that dead people don't come back to life shows us that something really did happen on that first Easter morning. Something really did happen. They didn't try to overthrow the government. They didn't try to take things by force. Instead, they continued to live out the way of Jesus. They continued to live this out. They continued to say, I'm following this Jesus no matter what. So I'm here today to tell you that Jesus rose from the dead. Place your trust in him. This is who he said that he was. He said that I am the resurrection and the life. It's what he taught ahead of time. He said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. Jesus is the uncreated Son of God who created all things and is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of you surrendering your life to him. And so finally, I want to end by talking about the two soldiers in Matthew 27. I want to reread just a few verses. We're going to reread Matthew 27, 27, 27 through 31 and Matthew 27, 54. You can call it a tale of two soldiers if you want to get Dickens esque about it. It says this Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. That's one side of the story, is one set. Let's turn to verse 54. When the centurion, a commanding officer in the Roman army, And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I think all of us can fit into these two categories. We're either those who mock Jesus or those who praise Jesus. We may not openly mock him, we may not openly revile him, but the way we live can do that. When we choose to live for ourselves, we're mocking the Son of God and say, You're not truly God, I am. I know better than you do. God, I choose my own way, not your way. We spit on him time and time again. We hit him over the head time and time again because we choose ourselves over him. But There's another option. We're not relegated to being those first soldiers who who do this over and over again. There's an option to say, truly, He is the Son of God. There's an option to make a change. There's an option to repent and go a different way. An option to turn from your sin, a turn from living for yourself, turn from your own righteousness, your own good works, saying, surely I'm good enough, and turn to Jesus. Saying, there's no good in me. There's good in Jesus. And I accept his righteousness. I accept that he is the son of God. I accept that he died for my sins, that he was resurrected, and that he will bring me new life. I'm going to speak to all of you one-on-one for a moment. I want you to forget the person sitting next to you, the person that, that you came with this morning. I want you to just listen like we're having a conversation over a good cup of coffee. Jesus is Lord. And he loves you. He loves you. He is the Lord of all. He is the God of creation. The God who created the heavens and the earth. And he loves you. He sees you. He knows what you've been through. He knows everything that's happened in your life. And he loves you. Not just the way that some of us say that we love someone and then don't really show it. He loves you so much that he poured out his life. That he took your place. He gave his life for your life. He says, I know that they can't make it, but I will make the sacrifice for them. I'll take on their sin. I'll take on their shame. And he did that for you. He's the only way of salvation. The only way of salvation. There's no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't follow any other sort of religious belief. There's no other way to God. It's not about strifing. It's not about doing all of these things. It's not about doing more right than wrong. It's about coming to the cross of Jesus. Surrendering to him, saying, my good isn't good enough. And the good news is that he doesn't beat you over the head with it. He doesn't say, look at all of your sin. He forgives you. He forgives you. Everything you've done wrong. All the wrong, all the the deepest, darkest shame, that thing that you wish could be forgiven, that thing that you wish you could do over again, He forgives you. You are forgiven when you come to Jesus. Every single sin, all of them covered by His blood. So today is the day to come, today is the day to surrender. Today is the day to say, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm no longer going to be God because I'm a crummy God. Today is the day to come to him. And I'm not just talking about praying a prayer, Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, and then going out, peace, I'll see you at Christmas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true surrender. Not going back and praying something like, okay, that was a good message, Pastor. Yes, this Jesus is good. Now I'm going to go back to my old way of life. I'm talking about true surrender. Truly saying yes to Jesus. Dying to yourself. Taking up your cross daily and becoming a disciple of Jesus. That's what Jesus says the cost of discipleship is in Luke 9, 23. It's a costly pursuit. It requires you to lay yourself down. It requires you to repent of your sins, to go a different way, to choose his way over your way. But Jesus' way isn't just a list of right and wrongs. It's experiencing joy unspeakable. It's experiencing a love that never fails. A love like nothing else this earth has to offer. So will you come to Jesus today? Will you surrender to Him today? Will you repent of your way and place your trust in Jesus, making Him Lord? Because I have good news for you. Jesus is alive. He took your place on the cross. He says, I know they can't do it, but I can. All of your sin, all of your shame, God, come to the cross today. If you'll place your faith in Him, you can be forgiven. You can experience joy unspeakable. You can experience hope like no other. You can experience eternal life. Maybe you're you're here today and you realize as I've been talking that the life that you've been living isn't cutting it. You're you're striving and you're going after all these things and you're ready for something different. Today's the day to make a change. If you're feeling something stirring inside of you, just go into that for a moment. Stir, stir into that longing. Something is at work. There's no, uh, it's no coincidence that you're here today. God is calling. He's moving in your heart. He's doing something inside of you. So listen to what he's doing. This may be a decision that you're making for the first time. You've never heard the good news of Jesus before. You've never heard it put like this before. And it may be coming to the first time, surrendering to him, saying, I want your salvation. Or maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time. You've called yourself a Christian, but then when you, you look at your life, you realize that you haven't actually surrendered to Jesus. You've said that you follow Jesus, but like Jonah, there's no evidence of it in your life. No matter if it's your, your first time or you're truly surrendering to him today after calling yourself a Christian, today can be the day of salvation. Today can be the day where all things are made new. So I want to do something that I, I don't normally do. I want to have us all close our eyes and bow our heads as the worship team comes back up. God loves you. I ask you all to please have your eyes closed and your heads bowed. God loves you with an unfailing love. He is beautiful. He is kind. He he desires to make you whole. He desires to give you freedom from your striving. Freedom from from the sin, freedom from the shame, freedom from all the the junk in your life. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And his resurrection is the monument to death's defeat. It's the pinnacle of human history. Today can be the day that you receive his peace. It can be the day that you receive his eternal life. After hearing this, if you're ready to place your trust in Jesus, if you're ready to receive his salvation for either the first time or to now fully surrender to him, I want you to just raise your hand now and keep it up. Amen. Just Keep your hand up. Now here's the part where I'm going to ask you to do something that's a bit uncomfortable. Because following Jesus isn't a one-time decision. It's not just something that we do here on a Sunday morning. It's a lifelong relationship where you place his ways above your ways. It's going to require some uncomfortableness. It's going to require you to become his disciple, which makes you lay down your life. So if you say that you're ready to make that step today, Even if you didn't raise your hand a moment ago, I'm going to ask you to come forward. We have a few people here at the front that are ready to pray with you, ready to help you make that decision to follow Jesus. And so if you're ready to make that step today, I'm going to ask you to come forward now. Don't be shy about it. There's salvation that is unspeakable. There's joy that's unspeakable. Don't let anything get in the way. Don't let pride get in the way. God loves you with an unfailing love. He desires for you to be made whole. He desires for you to accept his salvation. To know that you are radically loved. To know that you're radically cared for. Maybe you're also here and saying, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I know that I love him. I know that I have eternal life. But I know that there are some things in my life that haven't been right. Some things where where I've been struggling. Some things that I, I know I need to give up. I also want to invite you to come forward as well. There's healing and grace at the altar. There's mercy at the altar. As I pray here in a moment, I just want to invite you to come forward as I'm praying. God, you have poured out your great love for us. You've poured out your mercy upon us. Your grace. Had you desire for us to come to you. You're the good Father. The one who's like no other. The one who sees all of our sin all the things that that we've done wrong, every time that we've gone our own way instead of your way, and still you forgive us. Still you show your love to us. we are so thankful. You are good. You are beyond all things. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.